0: Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and guys, I must say I am extremely and incredibly well-rested after this much-deserved winter hibernation that I went through. For those of you who are just joining this show, what I did, and I mean for like a lot of years there, what I did was I was releasing an episode of this show for, I want to say it was an unbroken track record of something like six years or something like that, mostly because, uh, ego or maybe it's pride. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, gosh, me having an ego problem, Who would have thought, but, uh, you know, honestly, I wanted, I, I wanted people to understand that when I say this is a weekly show, I mean, this is a weekly show. And so in the face of, uh, family members and friends getting married, or for that matter, dying even, or whenever I'm moving or something like that. You know, just these huge life changes that that happen once in a while. The show was always coming out. And then it gets to a point where, I mean, I've done this for so many years that it's like, I don't really think I've got anything to prove anymore on that. And so it's been kind of nice to take these little breaks once in a while so I can recharge my batteries and think about something not this. And it's, I think it's been an overall, enjoyable thing. So one of the things I always try to do is encourage people if you're thinking about starting a podcast, do go for it. Alright, maybe it's gonna work, maybe it won't. But go for it, give it a try. But no matter what happens, don't be afraid to take some time off once in a while, you know, don't be afraid to you are not your, you know, whatever listener base you attract, you are not their servant. And so it's just I'm, I'm not trying to be a jerk about it or anything But it's like at the same time I don't even know how I got started going on this. Whatever Anyway, so But basically this is my first episode back After a, a winter hibernation Let's just put it that way And I am charged I am fully loaded for bear I am ready to go Boys and girls And what I'm going to be going to town on today This is a movie that I've been looking forward to Or let me rephrase that had been looking forward to for quite a while before its theatrical release. I've even been, you know, if records be checked, I you know, I, I think it would be fair to say, I was even a little bit of a cheerleader uh, for this movie at certain points. I was extremely interested to see 2019's Joker, directed by Todd Phillips and starring Joaquin Phoenix, for reasons that I can't even fully articulate. I just sensed that this was a movie that was gonna be important, I was gonna care about, and honestly, very likely, probably even in, like, greatly enjoyed, like far beyond, oh, well, this is a good movie, and that's that, you know? Something, something a bit more than that, something that I would love, live with, and cherish. And I must say, without getting too far ahead of myself, I must say that the movie certainly delivered the goods, and so what I wanted to do today was spend some time kind of going a little bit more a little bit more at length I suppose you might say going a bit beyond the one episode the kind of first impressions episode that I released about Joker uh, I want to say it was like October of 2019 not very long after uh, the movie came out after I got back from my honeymoon because I saw Joker on an IMAX screen on uh, the cruise ship that we were on. Wanted to at least just get my my thoughts out there about it, let this movie just sort of marinate a little bit, and then maybe revisit it, and let's just see where we are then. But especially for a movie like this, I didn't want to do something like this alone. I knew that, number one, I wanted to have some kind of a co-host with me, Number 2, I wanted it to be somebody who generally loves the movie. And I guess number 3, I wanted it to be someone that I knew for a fact. I mean, yes, they they enjoyed the movie, but perhaps got something out of it different from what I got out of it. And so, I I thought about it for a while there, and so honestly, my first instinct was well today's today's guest i mean you know i'm trying to think of a clever way to frame this but no i mean today's guest this truly was my first last and only choice if today's guest had had said you know thanks but no thanks guys i'm i'm a little bit up a creek here cuz i don't I, I wouldn't have had a plan b you know again if you're ever a podcaster you need to know that sometimes your ideas are not fungible if you want to do things in a certain way and you want to have a, a specific specific co-host or some kind of a guest or somebody that's coming along for the ride, if that person says no, or just whatever happens, happens, you don't miss, or at least I don't have the ability to just sub in somebody else. If if today's guest had said, thanks, but no thanks, that's basically, that that would have put the kibosh on this episode that you're listening to right now. So all of this, everything that I've said up to this point is a ridiculously long way of Introducing today's guest, I'm welcoming back to the show for the first time. I think at this point, it's it, we're closing in on a year since the last time that she was on the show. She's uh, a longtime friend of the show. I do consider her to be a friend personally. She's just uh, extremely cool. And by the way, podcaster in her own right. I welcome back to the show the co-host and co-founder of Supergirl Forever. I think it's Supergirl Forever Radio.
1: Yeah, just uh, Supergirl Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I really enjoy uh, your deep dives on uh, all your stories, your comics, your movies, your TV that you do. So I'm really looking forward to talking about Joker with you.
0: Well, I actually checked into this because um, I knew that it had been a long time since since you'd been here. And so, like, technically, the last show that you were on where you and I were just batting ideas back and forth, and this is, I think, going to come up between the two of us, again in just a moment. But this was, um, and of course I don't have. Oh no, this was an episode of Trinus Magnus Jabs Reality. This was uh, State of the Union. Rebecca and Magnus talking about the DCEU. So that was really the last thing that you and I had done together. Now there, I guess technically there was something else. You were, you contributed to the sort of radio drama for Smallville that I put together, and that was. May of 2018, but you weren't really on the show on the show, you know, so this is really the first time that you, that you've been back since that uh, Trinus Magnus Jabs reality show. And it was actually, I think specifically that show that was, that to me was, was sort of the turning point in making my decision. I've got to at least try getting Rebecca on the show because you and I were coming from a very, I would say a a pretty similar place in that episode. I had you on specifically to talk about the DCEU in general up to that point, and then specifically kind of focus in on our thoughts and our reactions, negative as they may have been to Justice League and just (laughs) all the nonsense with that. And you made a, I thought this was almost a prophetic sort of passing comment. You said that what you wanted from Warner brothers with their DC films going forward. You said words to the effect of just make a film, let everything else yeah. fall into place, but just make a good movie and don't worry about keeping up with the Joneses. It was something to that effect. And I thought, okay, well, I guess she's got a point there, but what I want to say, and I, I didn't blow you off, but I thought, well, that brought up something else. And so I didn't actually hammer on that the way I should have, but I think, with, with an eye on how things turned out with Joker, this prescription that you gave to Warner Brothers, in your opinion, did that pay off? Oh,
1: absolutely. For Joker, yes, 100%. I, I, that's That statement, I do remember saying something to that effect. And to me, that's such a simple concept. It's a no-brainer. It's like, well, you're in the movie business. If you want people to come see your movie a lot, make a good film. Uh, So, uh, And I probably should distinguish, I I do distinguish a little bit between movies and films. And so uh, I guess when I talk about Joker, uh, because I I know that you've in past episodes of your show uh, talk about the sort of pretentious nature of the movie versus film uh, terminology, which I totally get. Sometimes I feel pretentious saying it. Um, But if Warner Brothers wanted to make films, make films and make them good, and make them, uh, you know, take them seriously. You don't have to, you know, make movies that or make films that don't have humor in them, but take them seriously as a craft, as an art form. And right. I think that's what they did with Joker. They, they left it up to Todd Phillips, let him tell the story that he wanted to tell, make make the film he wanted to make, make it look the way he wanted it to, you know, just gener- generally just giving it over to him, saying, hey, go make this film, and I think that's what they should do with every film. But sadly, these days, it, you know, a lot of it is done by committee. And those are usually the films or the movies that I don't like because you can't see a perspective. With Joker, you can see someone had a perspective. Someone had a, a story that they wanted to tell about this character. So I think they... Um, they knocked it out of the park in terms of the creation of the film and the execution of the film. But then you can see the results of it. I mean, it made—didn't it make over a billion dollars? It, it sure did. Uh, uh, to, for this kind of a film to make that kind of money, that's huge. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that kind of thing should be a signal to other, other film studios around— the world, just make a good film and people will come and see it. So I, I'm really happy that uh the Joker turned out the way it did. I was I went into it not wanting to be spoiled. I tried to avoid trailers as much as possible. And I'm pretty open-minded about comic book movies or, or comic book films. And I, I don't uh, mind if things are a little different in terms of the iteration or the take on the character. So I, w- I was open to whatever that they were going to do. And so I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised by how good it is in terms of the quality, but also how well it did in terms of the, the financial aspect.
0: Uh, yeah, and I'm uh, pretty much I- I'm right there with you. Now, the this is just a theory that I've got, and if you disagree, you know I hope you say so. But for me, when it comes to a you know a, a film that's coming out, it looks really interesting, and and all of that stuff. There's usually this one thing that happens. There's usually this one special little buy-in that that really sells you on it, you know? And so I guess for you, do you remember what the killer app was that got you on board with this film? Or was it just the existence of the film itself? Or or how did that work out?
1: I I don't remember watching full trailers, but I remember the first, uh, not sneak peek, but the first real thing that Todd Phillips, I think, I want to say they put out on Twitter. I think that's mm-hmm. where I first saw it. It was, it was just the shot of, it was like a, a test, test footage, maybe. It, that, that's probably more of what it was, where it was Joaquin's uh, camera, if he was in the purple suit or not. But it was just him, and there were these like hologram or holographic images that were sort of projecting the Joker face onto his face, his Arthur Fleck face. And that's, that was the first time I was like, oh, I don't know what this is, but I'm interested. Like, sign me up. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm interested just based on this test footage. So that's all I remember carrying with me into the, the theater was mm. just that, um, that visual of where they might take him and just what he was going to look like. So I, I think that's that
0: for me was, was enough. Oh, fair enough. All right. Well, I mean, basically when, and I touched upon this a little bit before, but obviously I had uh, something other than positive response to justice league, which I think you and I are pretty much in agreement on this. That was not exact. I don't care who's, who, who gets credit for directing that movie the movie that came out in theaters is not a Zack Snyder film. And it's, it's really as simple as that, at least for me. And so I, I was sort of in this, I don't know, I was, I was kind of wallowing in this sort of uh, fanboy rut of, well, there's really nothing coming out in comics in, in or at least in comic book cinema that I was really all that interested in. And I think my listeners have probably heard me talk about that a, honestly, maybe too many times at too great a length, but I, I at least want to set the table on it by saying I was, I have not really been on board with comic book cinema in a very long time now. And so when word came down, uh, the pipeline that, Hey, there's going to be this, this, uh, Joker movie, it's really just kind of a solo Joker movie. Batman's not really going to be in it. And it's going to be this kind of low budget thing. It was, it was virtually everything about this sounded kind of like music to my ears but i think the honestly the killer app for me when it came to joker was Joaquin Phoenix because he's been kind of a notorious holdout on all of this comic book cinema stuff and so for him to finally sign on the dotted line to do a comic book film it it just seemed to me that this is going to be something special something different and I was definitely in a mood where I was ready for something that that was different something a little bit more for love of the game I mean uh what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah I'm sort of on that same level after Justice League I was gutted like I just I didn't want to see another DC film like I I watched Aquaman, I went to see Shazam, but I didn't I wasn't over the moon about them. I I would go and enjoy them for what they were, but the, there was nothing that I could really grab hold on. Like I I like to dissect films. I like to analyze the stories and the characters and the cinematography. I really like to do that, but some of those other movies <laughs> uh they were fun they were fun and that's the word that everybody wants to use because that's what you want apparently when you go to see a comic book movie but i i like a little something more of substance and so i was i, I was really uh, down on the dc uh the dceu for for a good while and and joker is not tied to that universe but it is uh, connected to the DC universe, so it's it's sort of in the same family. And when I saw Joker, it was such a uh, a refreshment for me. It, it felt like we were getting back to these movies having some depth to them. And I it was it was so uh, it, it it made me feel like they were trying to win me back a little bit. And I, I don't know if that's <laughs> they were they weren't thinking about Rebecca Johnson specifically, but mm-hmm. it just made me happy that someone was taking these characters and making serious films again. And I, I would agree with you that Justice League was not a Zack Snyder film. Uh, and, and for those reasons that we've talked about, there was no real depth to it. It was just kind of a popcorn flick that um, that you could go in and out and forget everything that happened in it. Um, so so Joker, for me, was uh, coming back to DC on film, as it were, and I, I was really glad that it was trying to do something a little different, and I think that's why Joaquin Phoenix stepped up to it, because, I mean, who, who would pass up getting to play the Joker? Uh, so I, I'm glad that he did it, and he did it with such um such style and such thought into the 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 role and the character that he was playing. So it it was just a a, a way to get me excited about DC uh in the cinema again cuz I I I was kind of deflated if I'm going to be honest.
0: <laughs> well, and I was too, but I must say that the interest that it seems that you and I shared on this this was in no means a universal phenomenon this has got to be kind of a rare thing not super rare but not super common either that a film will generate a virtual firestorm of controversy before it's even released before it's even been seen by anybody and the thing that kind of blew my hair back with joker it wasn't so much just what people were saying although i guess there was that too but the there seemed I mean, obviously, I'm the guy in the room that loves conspiracy theories. I love reading them. I I, I can't get enough of them. Give me give me more. I always want more. <laughs> I didn't. And so I, I don't. I I would hate to sound like a a conspiracy theorist here, but I mean, the there there did seem to be um, a very strange consensus and uh, uh, from I guess we'll say the usual suspects, people that were not just saying. Well, this film—it doesn't look like it's going to be something that I'm looking for in a movie. So you know what? Whatever. I, I I'm not interested in this. I don't want to have anything to do with it. This was a little bit different. Number one, that it was it was a it was a virtual lightning rod for negative uh, coverage in the fan media, the mainstream media, et cetera. But also specifically that people were attaching a political significance to this movie and we can touch on this as much as you want, but they were attaching a political significance to this movie that, number one, I don't think was intended, and number two, I don't think even really applies. But nevertheless, a huge amount of ink, virtual or otherwise, was spilled on why this movie is the most evil thing ever. So I'm going to open up my orange vanilla Coke here because I'm launching a uh, new tradition on this show. And why don't you do you remember what your reactions were to this, like this movie that seemed kind of interesting to you, but it seems like all these other people, it's like the knives were out. Like, what were your thoughts on all that?
1: Well, it's funny because every DC film, to my knowledge, uh, starting with uh, probably Batman v. Superman, I guess, or even before Batman v. Superman was even kind of being shot there was controversy about the casting, you know, Ben Affleck in Gal Gadot. There were all these um, uh, uproars about the casting there. There were things that were uh, controversies with Justice League. There were uh, controversies with Wonder Woman. For some reason, somebody put out all these rumors about how it was doing badly. And there were things that were uh, big uproars with Jason Momoa before Aquaman came out. I think the only movie that didn't have any problems was Shazam!, but every every other movie in the universe, uh, in the DC universe, that was being put to film had some sort of controversy swirling around about it. So I wasn't really too surprised that people were going uh, to get back into a firestorm for Joker, but it was a little silly to me that people kept talking about it before they had ever seen it, before the film had even come out. And they were making assumptions about what a character like the Joker would incite people to do. It was almost like they wanted to have a theater shooting. It was the strangest thing. Um, And, and I, I would agree with you that the, the film, it has, I think you could probably get some political messages out of it, but even the Joker in the film, uh, or I guess he's just Joker uh, (laughs) because of the title. uh, But he even says like, I'm not political. This is not a political thing for me. Uh, So it's, It's strange that they would attach something to the film when the film itself isn't trying to make that message. And it just... It's kind of funny to me that there was all that uproar before the film came out and then afterwards, the only thing it actually incited people to do was to dance on the stairs in (laughs) in the Bronx. (laughs) And so I I think that's, that's such a great thing that people... I think people who actually go see these films don't get enough credit. The audience doesn't get enough credit for being able to go see a film and just watch it for it being a story. Mm -hmm. Like I think most people, when they went to go see it, they were following the character journey of Arthur Fleck and where his story took him and where he ended up. And I think we all go into it. We're, we're we're smart enough to understand this guy's going to become a villain He's going to be doing bad things, and this is just the story. Uh, I think most people are not going to take that and say, well, if Arthur Fleck is doing it, I guess I should do it too. That, that's not, I don't think that's the, the majority of people. And so I think people who were causing that uproar were not giving the audience enough credit for being able to watch a film. And walk away from it after it was over. So it, I, I really love that the uh, reception of the film actually turned into something very positive, and mm-hmm. joyful, and uh, and it's great that people have these iconic shots, you know, all over Instagram or wherever them on this. Like I want to go find those stairs next time I'm in New York. So <laughs> I, I think, uh, I think that's the great. Um, the the great result that happened from the film and I was glad that it went out without incident I I don't recall hearing any incidents that happened in the theater uh, because of the content of the film so I'm glad that that was a positive way that the the film was received
0: yeah and this this next is completely anecdotal but the worst that I that I personally know about things getting and this is as far as I'm concerned, this is unsubstantiated gossip, is people storming out of the theater in disgust. Mm. But that, as far as I know, is as bad as it ever got. And I don't even know if that actually even happened other than in some, I don't know, Twitter, SJW's mind, you know? So, I mean, that I honestly don't know. But actually get into the movie, this was... um, Sometimes you get just the thing that you want at just the time that you want it and as i mentioned kind of in passing a little while ago i saw this movie i was on my honeymoon uh, my wife and i took we 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 took a cruise and because we specifically wanted to be in Communicado for about a week and just kind of get away from everything and well they've got an imax theater on this on this ship and so I even joked to her at the time. I said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we saw Joker on our honeymoon? <laughs> <laughs> and she took that seriously. And so mm-hmm. I, I was thinking, well, I guess I'll probably see it when we get back from the cruise and everything. And, you know, maybe that's for the best anyway, because that'll give the controversy a little bit of time to die down. And uh, and so I figured, you know, that's probably going to be, that was going to be the plan. Well, she made a plan of her own. We ended up seeing the movie on on the ship and it's in an IMAX theater. And I must say that from the title cards, just the logos at, at the beginning of the film, I was instantly on board with what this movie was up to. But for me, the real turning point is when the movie itself starts and you get that over the shoulder kind of gradual push in on Arthur. He's sitting at his table. And he's putting on his makeup. And it's this really powerful thing that as much as I love comics or as much as I love music or just anything else, only cinema can do this. You know, with the camera movements and the camera angles, the, the acting and the performances, the lighting, the, the film score, he, he's basically trying to force himself to smile and he just can't. You know, and it's this, for me, it's just this really powerful sort of mission statement that happens at the very top of the movie that says, this is what we're going to be doing here. You know, this is a microcosm of virtually everything that you're going to see in the movie. It's almost like, in symphonic terms, this is the overture, and everything else that we see in the movie is basically detailing everything that we saw in that in that first shot. So I don't know if that was your buy-in for the movie whenever you were actually watching it, but that was definitely my buy-in. That's one of the top, yeah, I'll say top five best sequences in any comic book film that I've ever seen, period. So anyway, so there you go.
1: Yeah, no, I, I love the, the way the film opens because it, it does a good job of, uh, helping us get introduced to Arthur without having to really say anything, and that to me, I that's why I'm a Zack Snyder fan. I like films that do that because it it, it allows you to become immersed into the story. If you're not being thrown, I've been to, I've been to movies before where they start with exposition and it just it's like this dialogue dump all over, even before you get into you know the the opening credits or whatever, and it's just so hard to to get involved with it. So I think when films go into it with no dialogue, just visuals, you can kind of uh, imagine yourself into that situation. And I think it did uh, Todd Phillips did it so brilliantly in Joker and I love the fact that he's having to force himself to smile. I think that says a lot about his character and the tragedy of his life. And what I especially love about that specifically through the film is because it is a thread that goes in and out of, uh, I, I guess, Arthur's character, but his, his journey and the people he interacts with, because he does it there at the beginning to himself, and then when he goes to encounter the Waynes at Wayne Manor and he finds young Bruce, and he does that same thing with uh, with little Bruce. He tries he tries to force that smile on him. And he even tells Alfred, he's like, I'm just trying to make him smile. Mm. And then at the end, we see it come back sort of full circle, almost like a really nice bookend uh, of where, you know, where he ended up versus where he started. And he does that same uh, forcing of himself to smile, but this time it's with his own blood. And it's, it's grotesque the way it is done, but he, he, I think he's genuinely smiling there at the end with that forced smile. So he doesn't even really have to force the smile with his with his blood painting it on his face because he's he's enjoying that moment. It's a, a real perversion of joy uh, because it's so uh, grotesque and, and grim. But I like the way that they did that visually, that they, they showed that he struggled at the beginning to find a reason to smile. And in his... In his uh, mental state, it was very strange at the end, but he he was smiling because I guess he had found um, he had accomplished his purpose that they they talk about um, at the uh, uh, at the comedy club about him bring laughter and joy into this cold dark world. All of that is a perversion. He's not really. He's not doing it in a positive way. It's a very negative, violent way. But uh, for him, that that brought him joy, which is so strange to think about. That's one of the things that this film has really (laughs) made me think about is how, you know, to think about this whole thing through Arthur's perspective. And the the forcing of the smile does a really good job of trying to get inside his head. Why doesn't he smile? What does make him smile? So I, I really like that about this film.
0: I do as well, and the fact that by that by that point in the movie, I mean he has his purpose has kind of inverted. You know, um, he's not making the world, or not even trying to make the world smile. Now he's making himself smile. Um, he saw it as part of his uh, life's mission uh, to take care of his mother, and and by that point in the movie, uh, well, at that. By then, he, he's murdered his mother as well as other people. And, you know, you kept using the word inversion. And it's like, I think that's actually a really good way to put it because he has sort of flipped his motives. He's flipped his, his, his agenda. He's flipped his methods. He's flipped virtually everything by that point. And even his physical appearance, it's kind of similar. Like the last time we see him, before that little epilogue at the end in Arkham... The last real time that we see him in the movie, he's still wearing the clown makeup, except now it has this darkness to it, you know, and and not even just the blood, although that too, but it's it's got this darker sort of edge to it. And it's one of those things that I don't know that, like some people, I guess they, they would need to have that pointed out to them. You know, but then, you know, once it has been pointed out to, you know, you're like, oh, my God, you, that, that's right. That, and that is a really, th- that's a very powerful and I would say very cinematic way of developing the character, not just on the page, but also on the screen. And maybe that's the best way to put it. Now, one of the criticisms, and I, I don't think that this has any real merit to it, but I at least want to get your thoughts on it. One of the criticisms that I've seen leveled against this movie is that it's it's basic. It's not really the Joker; it's taxi driver in makeup. Now, in your opinion, is that a valid criticism, or or do the people who say that are they perhaps missing the point?
1: I think there are probably some uh, <clears throat> parallels to it, and I think there are some probably and I, I'm not in Todd Phillips' head so I don't know for sure but I would assume that he was inspired by taxi driver and uh, I think it's the king of comedy uh, mm-hmm. I, I I assume that he intentionally borrowed some things because he was influenced by that and I don't I don't mind that at all uh, because I think he did it in such a way that he still told an original story and mm-hmm. so that's that's all I care about I, I don't care if somebody uh, Pull something from another uh, film just because they they kind of think it will work there in in what they're trying to do for for whatever they're creating. So I don't mind that. I think it's a valid criticism because it's it it's there. But it, in terms of my enjoyment or my understanding of the story, that wasn't impacted at all.
0: Hmm. All right, fair enough. Well, um, I guess my retort for that was going to be that and I'm talking about the original creation here, but the Joker as a character came from Bob Kane being in, being inspired by Conrad Veidt's role in the silent film, The Man Who Laughs, while Jerry Robinson took inspiration from just a regular Joker playing card. And then those two influences, those were basically given to Bill Finger, who then fleshed out the character and developed it from there. And so... I guess what I'm saying is the creators of the Joker took existing imagery, which they thought was powerful, and, and then they created a character sort of around that. And, you know, call me crazy, but it, it looks to me like Todd Phillips took existing Joker iconography and then created a movie character around that. It's essentially the same creative process that the Joker originated from which drove the inspiration of Joker as a film. And so to say that and and this is not to speak of the fact that there is precedent aplenty in the comics for the Joker as a failed stand-up comedian, you could argue that all Todd Phillips really did was number 1 give him a first name and then or a full name and then number 2 basically give him a bit more of a detailed backstory, but he's not really coloring too far outside the lines unless I'm really missing something. I mean, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really cool point that I hadn't really connected about the history of the creation of the Joker and how those things did inspire what they did in those early days. And and so I, I think that's a, a perfectly fine thing to do. We're all going to be inspired or influenced by something if we're a creative person. And so I, I think it's it's good to to use what inspires us to Uh, further the story that we want to tell. And so I think that's a really, really good point. And I think that, especially with, you know, Batman and the Joker and that whole mythology being around for such a long time, it's inevitable that if you're going to make a story, a film, a TV show, a comic book story, if you're going to make something in that universe, you're going to be inspired I mean, it's just, I don't think you could avoid <laughs> being inspired by things that have come before you in terms of the the purple jacket, the green hair, you know, all of that. That's going to come from something that you have probably seen in your past experience with those kinds of stories. So I, I think that's, you know, for me, I, I think that that's, that's fine. And I, I think what they ended up doing was a, was a, a good take on the character that not only... Uh, made uses of those references to great effect but it also made made uh some of the stuff with his stand up and his comedy bits like you were talking about how that was mostly pulled from the comics i mean i'm, I'm pretty sure that was in the killing joke i haven't read the killing joke in a while but i want to say that 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 sort of bit of his character was in the killing joke. And so for me, I really appreciated that because it wasn't just somebody saying, no, the comic books aren't important. Uh, Some, you know, Todd Phillips was saying, no, I like that, that aspect of the character and the source material. I'm going to pull from that and make it into something, uh, you know, for myself. So I like that, that he used all kinds of things in order to tell that story. And uh, so I I don't mind that one bit.
0: Yeah. and uh I couldn't agree more there was a there was another sort of if i if I hadn't already been on board with this movie by this when this particular scene popped up, I think this would have done it but there's a uh there's a moment in the film where uh, basically Arthur gets hauled into his boss's office and pretty much dressed down i mean the injustice of this of this scene I think sort of speaks for itself but basically his boss Hoyt says that you know look you just need to return the sign give it back to the owner the guy's going out of business he doesn't he he doesn't want to have to buy another sign and it's like he's not even listening to Arthur when he says okay look I got attacked people stole the sign then I got the crap beaten out of me I don't have the sign it's broken it's in pieces it's like he just doesn't want to hear that and so this whole time he's basically giving him this this kind of bloviating sort of lecture and there comes a point when Arthur just shuts up and he gives him just this really evil look and smile and it's like it ain't Arthur that's standing there and that thinking all kinds of dark thoughts in that moment that's our first real glimpse of the Joker and yeah that
1: oh sorry go ahead
0: I was gonna say and then you've got the music on top of that that is just just this is a gorgeous film score and it's just a perfect little moment in the movie now what were you gonna say
1: oh well i was just going to uh add to your uh your observation which i think is a good one that he in that scene he's he's struggling with what what he's already kind of talked about i I don't know if this is after or before he has that conversation with his his doctor, his counselor, where he's like, "You're not even listening to me. You're not even paying attention to me." That's a that's an aspect of his character that I think informs why he does what he does at the end. Because he hit one of his personal, uh, one of his personality traits is that he, and one of his needs, I guess it should say, is that he wants people to see him. He tells that doctor that he felt like no one really saw him, and even he didn't know if he really existed, and. Uh, in his journal uh, there at the end when he is on live with Murray Franklin and he's Joker there. Uh, Right before, uh, spoiler alert, I assume that people listening have seen it, he shoots and kills Murray. Uh, he, I, I, I liked sort of pausing and looking what actually was in his journal. And he writes, I don't want to die with people just stepping over me. I want people to see me. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a big aspect of his character. And I think that's why um, being Joker was such a... It, it was almost like it, it gave him more confidence, made him feel more powerful. Because people saw him people were looking at him i i think you're talking about the the visual cues and um how how cinematic this film is and how it's able to do in film what it probably couldn't do in other mediums and or other media i guess i should say uh but there's something i noticed on rewatch that i hadn't noticed the first time i saw it but he uh arthur will extend his arms out Mm -hmm. Uh, a couple of times throughout the the film where he's sort of doing it as sort of his, like, um, I don't know, like his pose as he's sort of finishing up whatever he's doing. He does it, I think, in the bathroom after he kills the guys on the subway. And he does it right before he goes on with Murray Franklin. And he does it uh, when he's standing on top of the cop car uh, when all the chaos is going on in Gotham City at the end of the film. And there at the end, when he's standing on top of that car and all of those people that big crowd that riot crowd is standing there he's got a he's got a an audience people are looking at him and he finally does that pose and it's like they're, they're o- overwhelming praise of him at that point and so i think that that is the culmination of that scene with his boss that he feels like no one is paying attention to him nobody cares about him they're not paying attention to his struggles not not seeing what he's going through but those people at the end they see him for this uh symbol that they have attached to him uh to to be this guy who's fighting fighting the man fighting the rich man fighting the uh the i guess the um you could refer to him as the bourgeois or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. he he is that symbol for them. So I, I, I really like that the film does a good job of layering in those those thematic elements of his personality, and you see it planted there in that scene.
0: Right, and, you know, I, 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 I want to piggyback on that a little bit and say that, first off, the Murray Franklin scene, you know, when he, when he's actually on the show and he's giving his interview, you know, There's this notion that there's no such thing as a perfect scene, you know, and there's this entire film school theory that goes into that. It doesn't matter how good it is, it can always be better because of this, that, or the other thing. And I don't really care so much to wade into that. What I'm going to say as somebody who's never been to film school and frankly doesn't really much care to go, I do consider that to be a perfect scene. And one of the things that works for me about that scene is... That number one, he confesses to shooting the those uh, Wayne executives. He he basically cops to it like right there, live on TV. And number two, and I thought this was telling. He never, even though he could, up to a point, he could claim that was self-defense, except for the very last uh, of his victims. And then no, that that ain't self-defense anymore, Haas. But he never even tries to say, well, you know, they started it or, hey, look, I just snapped and, you know, some things happened. You know, I I shouldn't have done it. I was having a bad day. He never says any of that. He just says, I killed them. And he just lets that hang out there. And it's, the thing is, I guess if you want to put this in terms of like a point counterpoint, you've got Arthur's scene in Hoyt's office where he was trying to defend himself and then he just shuts up to the Murray Franklin scene where, he he just says, yeah, I did it. Even if that's not completely accurate, he doesn't try to nuance it. He just says, yeah, I did it. What do you think of that? He just kind of throws it out there. And knowing that people are going to misinterpret it, or at least I have to believe he knew that people, they're going to instantly assume the worst about him, even though the situation itself, I think, does kind of exonerate him, his circumstances, he doesn't even try to, you know, introduce any kind of uh context, nuance, any of that. He just says, I did it, there you go. And that was an incredibly I, I thought that was just a very eye-opening moment in terms of how far this guy has fallen by this stage in the movie. That he doesn't he doesn't try to make excuses or or anything. He just says, I did it, that's it.
1: Yeah, I think that speaks to his progression in his confidence level he's he's so confident in himself by that point that he's going to confess to three murders live on television that is uh unexpected and probably very dumb for him you know to do because you you would you would want to call your lawyer lawyer normally or do something like that you wouldn't confess that kind of thing on television but he does it because he sees that people are, are kind of I mean kind of worshiping him they, they mm-hmm. are f- taking in uh, following him in his footsteps they're taking him as a symbol he even in his fantasy and I actually want to talk to you about the the girlfriend at some point yeah. uh, because I have lots of questions that I want to get your uh, take on but um uh, But he, in that fantasy with the girlfriend, she tells him, you know, I I don't know what those other people are saying, but I think he's a hero. So he sees himself as the hero of his story, as all good villains would. But uh, I think that's that's what gives him the ability to go out there and say that kind of stuff, even though that is something that normally, if you wanted to hide it, you wouldn't do. Um, And I want to also bring up... uh, the uh, the sign you, you mentioned earlier on in that scene where they're the he and his boss are talking about the sign that he lost. Um, for the first time I saw the film, I really latched on to the fact that the sign says, everything must go. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was, I mean, clearly and obviously, that's something that you would write on a sign if you were going out of business and you were trying to sell a bunch of stuff. I get that. But to me, that held a lot of weight to it in terms of the storytelling because for me i think that foreshadows what happens to arthur in the film as he becomes the joker everything in his life goes away his relationship with his mother his job his fantasy relationship with his quote girlfriend his co-workers his uh love of murray franklin his fear of not being seen or heard his even his suicidal thoughts go away he pushes those out. It looks like at one point he wants to kill himself uh, on Murray Franklin's show. But in the end, he kills Murray Franklin himself. Those things go away. And so I think that at that point, when he's sitting there with Murray, all of that stuff was gone yeah. and he became Joker. And so that was the culmination of everything. So I, I think that 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 really shows how far he you know, I think. You mentioned that he he fell, that he deteriorated, but I think in his mind, he uh, was starting to excel and succeed and get better in his perverted way of thinking. That's I think that's where he was at that point.
0: Oh, and I, I, that's actually a really good point. I don't I don't actually have a really good follow up to that all of a sudden. So <laughs> I'm gonna attempt an awkward segue here. And you mentioned uh, uh, Sophie. Now, uh, what were your thoughts on on, on that, ele- that element of the film?
1: Well, I I thought it was uh, initially when I watched it, I thought it was a really good reveal because I I just went along with it. I thought maybe he had run into this woman who lived in his building who had some same sick. Twisted sense of humor that he did. I mean, that's not out of the realm of possibility given, you know, Harley Quinn. Uh, So that, that was something I was like, okay, maybe she's, maybe, and I don't want to sound judgmental, but maybe she's kind of a weirdo and she is into this, but I thought it was a really good reveal at the uh, sort of there at the end when we see that, no, there hasn't really been anybody there. Um, and he's just kind of been... I mean, I think she did exist. I think she was a woman who lived in his building who had a daughter, but those interactions where she was praising him, saying that he was funny and that the murderous clown was a hero, all of that was stuff that he was just sort of fantasizing in his head, and so I think that that was a way for him to maybe give himself some confidence. Maybe he was trying to... I don't know get himself to the point where he could get up on stage and try to make some jokes and try I don't know there was a need he I think he was trying to fill a need in his life. I don't know. I, I, I like the way it was done uh, but I, I I guess I struggle a little bit to understand how she comes into being like how he I guess it's just a fantasy. I guess that's all we're supposed to take from it is that he's fantasized about this relationship with this woman.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I I agree with that. One of the debates that people have had is what exactly was her fate? Because there comes a point when he lets himself into her, into her apartment and then it's revealed that his history with her up to that point, most of it, at the very least, maybe all of it, you know, everything that we've seen of this woman uh, in the movie up to that point was completely in his head. But at the very least, anything to do with them having any kind of real relationship with each other, that certainly was all in his head. And so one of the questions that people were kind of batting around in the aftermath of this film is, what did he do to her? Now, Todd Phillips says that um, it's in the script. You know, he just basically got up and walked out of her apartment and he never laid a finger on her, Right. That's not really in the film, though. And so, considering the body count that this movie ultimately racks up, I think it's fair to ask, did he, in fact, take her out? And and I mean permanently. And I'm kind of of two minds on that, because most of the people that he kills in the movie are people who have wronged him in some way or another. Um, I think the... Uh, the little person's name in the movie. I think his name is Gary. And he and Arthur makes a specific yeah, point. Yeah, I think that's of, right. Yeah, he makes a point of letting him live just because, you know, Gary, you were always cool to me, you know. We were never really friends, but you never gave me a hard time. Whereas I forget and I've already forgotten the other guy's name, but the the guy that he did kill.
1: Uh Randall.
0: Randall, yeah, that's the one.
1: Yeah.
0: Um Randall did make Arthur's life you know, after a fashion, he did make it more difficult, and so that's why Randall met the fate that he did. Murray Franklin, you know, he he too had wronged Arthur, and so his mom had wronged Arthur, and so everyone else that he, that he kills in the movie were people that, they didn't deserve it, but you can see where, where Arthur was coming from. He felt wronged by them on that level, and so now they get to pay the price for it. Sophie never actually wronged him in any way. And no, I don't think, you know, even if he had tried asking her out and she said no, well, that's not wronging somebody. If anything, that's doing right by them. You're saying, no, I'm not interested. You know, if anything, you know, you should say thank you for that, you know. But nevertheless, I do think that we're talking here about a murderer. And so. Is it out of the realm of possibility that he killed Sophie? I, I, I'm of two minds about it. I could see it either way, but uh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I, I think that those two interpretations, I mean, and neither one is wrong, I guess. Uh, you, I guess if you wanted to be strict and go by the script, you could do that. Because uh, what I like about this film is there's a lot of room for interpretation. So I, I guess I come down uh, in terms of whether or not he killed her. I would come down on the side that he didn't. I think he left her apartment and he went on his way. Uh, and I, I, but I think it's it's something that I would want to think more about because I sort of see her and her daughter as a reflection maybe of Arthur and his mother Penny, um, and and maybe comparing and contrasting their relationship because it looked like. You know, uh, the the mother and the daughter had a good relationship, or at least from what we were shown. I don't know how much of that was real, uh, but you know, Arthur had this terrible relationship with his mother. Mm-hmm. So, I uh, so I think that um, you could see it maybe in that light. Uh, but I'd, I I would agree with you on the interpretation that he uh, she had not wronged him, so he probably was not going to kill her uh, so that's kind of where I land on it but I, I think you know we you know, we don't totally know but I think if the film was going to tell us that he killed her that he that the film would have shown that I, I think at the end when they're in Arkham and he has that scene with that other doctor that counselor um, it looks like he's walking down the hall with his feet covered in blood he's leaving mm-hmm. like bloody trails of his feet I think if he had murdered his girlfriend, his, quote, girlfriend, we would have seen something like that. Um,
0: hmm.
1: But but that's, that's just how I see it.
0: All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, it's just I, I tend to subscribe to the idea, look, deleted scenes don't exist. The script doesn't exist. If it's not in the film, it isn't canon most of the time. So... You know, I, I would at least allow a debate on this, and as much as you can, you can argue it either way. It's just I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I could see it either way. So, um, although you know, one of the things that I did want to talk about, this is, um, you, you mentioned the, basically, this is how the movie ends, with the implied murder of the the Arkham doctor, and, basically, there's this. That I, I kind of wonder, you know, was this a studio note that somebody, you know, passed to to Todd Phillips, and then he just he made the most of it? Did somebody at Warner Brothers say at some point we have to make it clear this isn't the actual Joker of Batman mythos? This is some kind of a forerunner, but this isn't the same character that Batman's going to go up against. Later on, because it, it seems like that ending bit with the murder of the Waynes, that just seemed a little try hard to me. It's, it's like somebody was basically tapping Phillips on on the shoulder and saying, "Now make sure you include this scene. That way, everyone knows this is going to lead to to a Batman that we're all more familiar with." But Phillips, being a a, a good director, he saw an opportunity there where. Okay, fine. I'm putting this in. I'm putting this scene where the Waynes die in the movie because you say it needs to be in there. Fine, but I'm gonna pay it off in sort of my own special way. Where Arthur sits there, he's basically laughing at the fact that Thomas Wayne, the supposed savior of the bourgeois in Gotham City, he's now dead, and I think he finds that. Number one, he finds that funny. Number two, he finds it. I think additionally funny that uh, Bruce Wayne is now growing up completely orphaned, and I think Arthur, as we, you know, by that point in the movie, he's got nothing left. I think he would find that fiendishly, sadistically, wickedly funny. And I just wanted to get your 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 thoughts on uh, on that whole enterprise. You know, this idea of. Did we have to see the murder of the Waynes in this movie? I mean, did we really need to make it clear that this isn't the Joker? Because honestly, I don't need, you know, this movie being as good as it is, I don't need this to somehow relate to the larger Batman mythos. It's fine by me that this thing exists in its own little world, in its own peculiar context. I don't need it to to fit into some larger filmmaking agenda does that make sense so this whole death of the waynes thing like where are you coming from on that did you did you actually need to see that does that need from a story standpoint does that actually need to be in the movie like what are your thoughts there
1: i guess i have a little bit of a different reading on the ending than you do but i'm i'm still kind of going back and forth with it myself trying to figure out what are they trying to tell me here because i actually really like the fact that we get to see the murder of the Waynes because it, ha- uh, and, and I know people are like, well, we've seen the, the Wayne murders a billion times. I get that.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: what I like the way that they did that was that the birth of Batman happens at the same time as the birth of Joker. Right. And I like that, uh, that connection point there. And you brought up the idea that maybe this isn't really the Joker, uh, I I've sort of bounced back on that myself because I don't know if the ending is trying to tell me that stuff that uh, that he went through never happened at all that maybe he's just imagining all of this uh, Joker stuff in his head um, is it something that he experienced the Joker stuff but he's just going to be in Arkham for the rest of his life what what are they trying to tell me there or or maybe he's uh, he maybe he was. In Arkham the whole time, I like I don't know I don't know exactly where, and I think the film is intentionally open ended uh, to let you fill in the blanks for yourself. And I that's one of my favorite things that uh, a film might do is give me something to discuss. I guess I come down I like the idea that Joker and Batman were born on the same day, and that Arthur might have gone into Arkham for a little while. But, of course, as we all know, I mean, Joker comes in and out of Arkham on on the regular. That's a thing that he does. So I think that it's possible that he is the Joker who would later go on to fight young Bruce as he becomes Batman. I think that's a possibility, Um but yeah, I don't know. I I kind of go back and forth in, in questioning what that what the ending really means uh, because it is such a, a quirky, strange uh, way to end the film. But uh, I think that it's it's something that I like to think about. And I, I for me, I guess I sort of wanted a little bit of Batman in there. We don't see him in the the cape and the cowl. We just see his birth and. To me, that was enough. Uh, I think it's. I think the the idea of a Joker origin story almost, for me, I think it demands a little bit of a connection to Batman because they have that sort of. I don't know if yin and yang is the right way to say that, but they have such a. uh, A weird, bond, that they are always going to be tied together. So I think for me, if a Joker origin story was made without some kind of uh, uh, reaching out to Batman as a character, that would have seemed strange. And I, what I was impacted more so than that in terms of the Bruce Wayne aspect of the film was that the they almost went to the point where they were going to say Joker and Batman were brothers or half-brothers. Right. That to me... When it got to that point in the film, I was like, oh, whoa, what are they doing? And I it sort of excited me because I've seen so many interpretations of, of Joker over the years. And I, I guess I'm one of those people, and, and this is probably, you know, why I love Batman v Superman, why I like Man of Steel, is that I'm open to different ways of telling these stories and uh, uh, you know, taking the characters to new heights and new places, and so I don't mind that. So I was, I was kind of interested and intrigued in the possibility that they would make them half brothers. Of course, I think by the end of the film, we we're told or it's insinuated that that is just crazy kooky Penny in her head thinking those things. Um, so I don't think that they cemented that, but the I, the playing of that idea was even more intriguing to me than the. Uh, showing of the Wayne murders, so uh, that to me was the c- more I- important aspect of the the Bruce Wayne part of the film.
0: Well, fair enough. All right, I, I at least wanted to, you know, ask you about that and just get your thoughts on it. Now, one of the one of the what I'm hoping is a long term sort of sort of legacy of this film is. Raising awareness, the thing is, it's not really specifically said what Arthur's mental illness is. I mean, you're kind of left to figure it out. And apparently, you know, some people involved with the production have done more research on this than others. And so there is a ring of authenticity in terms of his behaviors and his thought processes and all this stuff. Those things do align with various and sundry mental Mental illnesses one of the things that I hope this movie achieves though is just kind of raising awareness because the only to me the only way of of really processing everything that we see in this in this film is that the system utterly and completely failed Arthur in fact i I'll, I'll go a step further and say it abandoned him and so If nothing else good comes out of this, and it looks like a ton of good things are going to come out of this, but if if there was nothing else, at least people are starting. I've seen it on Facebook, and I I realize that my Facebook is not the sum and substance of everything that's happening in the universe, but it's like (laughs) at the same time, I do regard it as a little bit of a window into the outside world. If people on my friend list are talking about mental illness, well, gee, I never thought about X, Y, and Z. If they're talking about it, it stands to reason that probably other people are talking about it too. And the reason I'm being kind of a pain in the neck about this is to say that I think that any good art, and I mean truly good art, one of the things it's supposed to do is be a little bit provocative. But the other thing it's, or one other thing it's supposed to do is get people asking questions, not just about meaning, but I guess more about value this movie is saying something and does that have value of some kind to the rest of society? And in, at least in the case of Joker, the, the points that it's making about Arthur's you know, mental illnesses, look, may not manifest IRL in people going on murder sprees. I mean, obviously it could, but the broader idea of caring for people who do suffer from these sorts of things. I mean, I'm trying not to get too partisan here, but I mean, I do think in the in the political debate, you know, one of the things that people have mentioned as a political issue is how American society specifically relates to and treats mentally ill people. And specifically that it's not very good. And It's one thing to say all of that, but now we have Joker, and I would say specifically Arthur Fleck, kind of as um, an example of someone who desperately needed help and was repeatedly denied. And, you know, who's to say that, you know, even getting help, if that may have even made a difference in the end, but at least it would have changed the odds. So. I realize this is kind of a big can of worms. I understand if you don't want to get into that, but if you have any thoughts on that, I'm uh, I would like like to hear them.
1: I actually do have a lot of thoughts, and I hope I can remember all of them. I I am not somebody who can speak to the medical diagnosis or diagnoses or the uh, the aspect of what Arthur was going through physically in terms of his mental illness, uh, but I what I did when I watched the film is that I sort of, uh, what I think it does well is that it, it made me put myself in his shoes and his upbringing, his life, everything he was going through, it was completely, uh, thankfully, uh, I, I have to admit in, in, in all sincerity, I, his, his experience was so much different than mine. Right. I had a, uh, I had a happy childhood My parents stayed together until my dad died uh, in 2006. Uh, You know, I did have a brother or I have a brother, I should say. (laughs) He's still he's still with us. Um, But I, you know, I growing up, I had uh, parents, I had a brother, I had, you know, I I was cared for. I was um, loved. Uh, I had parents who hugged me. I think that was one of the things that Arthur was really looking forward to when he met Thomas Wayne. He was like, just, I, you're my father. Give me a hug. You know, those kinds of things, which are so sad. Yeah. And so I, I felt a, a real uh empathy for him because that was completely antithetical to my experience and I'm so glad for my experience I'm very grateful for uh what I was brought up in as a child and uh and continue to experience now um and so I I I think what the film did really well was make me uh, get inside his shoes and experience what it, life was like for him and uh and and in terms of his uh, medical condition i i was thinking more about his cackle his laugh Mm -hmm. and how the the film i think intentionally uh makes me question whether or not that was real because he gives out that card that says i have this medical condition i laugh at these awkward times and it's not It's not because I really feel this. It's because I can't control it. And the film actually poses the question that I think at least I was watching. I don't know if everybody had this question while they were watching it, but when I was watching it, I was like, I don't know if that's a real thing. I think sometimes he's laughing at things when he means to, I don't know. And there's a, there's a scene where he's standing outside the hospital when his mother is taken into the hospital and he's talking with those two police officers and they ask him, Hey, the, that condition you have, is that real? And Arthur asks them, what do you think? And so I, I appreciated that the film point blank said that, It is up to you, the audience who is watching this right now, whether or not you think that that is a real condition. It could be either way. It could be a real thing that he cannot control how he laughs, or it could be something that he uses as an excuse to act out. And so I like that they asked that question because in my second viewing, I started to really pay attention to when he laughs. So, uh... Arthur, um, when he goes to see that stand-up in the club and he's taking notes about what he looks like and how he's presenting himself, he he laughs, but he never laughs at the intended punchline. So when the comedian makes a joke and it's supposed to land, he, Arthur's not laughing there, but he's laughing right before the punchline. He does laugh at his own punchline when he's watching himself on a Murray Franklin show while he's in the hospital visiting his mom. He laughs with the crowd watching a Charlie Chaplin movie. Uh, he laughs at uh, Murray's, you know, how's that working for you punchline. And so I think there are some times when he's laughing when it's intended. And so I, I think that that is a really interesting thing to pay attention to. And so I have lots of questions, even in addition to, the possible—I don't know if he was going through any kind of depression. They talk about um, his his sadness. His mother, I think, writes in that letter to Thomas Wayne that she she considers Arthur to be a sad, sad person, but she calls him happy. That's her nickname for him. So right. I think that there are some there are some aspects of maybe different. Di- I'm like I said, I'm not a medical person. I don't know. I can't diagnose him, but. Uh, but I think there's a lot more going on with him, just aside from his awkward laugh. But there, there's so much that could be explored in in asking those questions.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree. And one of the reasons why I kind of wondered if he could turn it on and turn it off. I mean, you raised a lot of the same examples that I would have, but just my own in my own life. I mean, look, we all bring our own baggage to these sorts of things. And for me, there was this kid that I knew back in school and it was generally known that he'd been diagnosed with Tourette syndrome. Now, as it turned out, he and I, we were never like super close friends or anything, but he was one of those people who he just keeps popping up in life, you know? And so I knew him not super well, but I, he was not a stranger to me is what I'm saying. And On more than one occasion, I got the sneaking suspicion that he had a little—I'm not trying to invalidate his diagnosis. Somebody who went to medical school for or whatever school for a really long time made that diagnosis, and it's not my business to second-guess it. I'm not saying he didn't actually have Tourette's. I'm saying that he had a little bit more control over his actions and his words than— most people seem to realize because stuff that would land the average kid in a lot of trouble if they were to do he did with relative impunity and i couldn't help thinking that he had a little bit of he had a little bit of life armor going for him to where he could get away with certain saying certain things or or certain behaviors or or just whatever because he always knew that he'd be able to truthfully say, "Hey, I've got Tourette's syndrome. Don't blame me." And so, when I was doing my uh, Smallville retrospective for uh, the dreaded season four, the first, the uh, first episode of that of that dreaded season, I talked kind of obliquely, but I did talk about a, a teacher that I had. Uh, this was a soccer coach who was. This guy was hell on wheels. He was trouble. He's every school district's worst nightmare. This guy is a lawsuit waiting to happen. And so I got crosswise with that teacher over some things. He was my history teacher, and I ended up getting crosswise with him about some stuff. But so did so did this other guy, the the uh, Tourette's kid. And the thing is, the Tourette's kid took it in a direction and an intensity that I knew I, I just I dare not mess with. But I got the idea he knew he could get away with it because, hey, Tourette's, you know, but it wasn't the Tourette's that made him act out in such a way. He did that of his own free will. He just knew, like I say, that he had life armor that was going to protect him from from certain things, at least when he was in school. And so to tie it all back to the movie, the the issue that I kind of came away with was how much of this really did come down to to his mental illness, and how much of this is just Arthur the person. And the beauty of the movie is it gives you enough pieces of the puzzle that you can formulate your own interpretation, but it doesn't overburden you with information such that you now have this kind of didactic sort of movie that lays all the pieces out and it tells you the order in which everything goes. You know, it doesn't do that. Now, just to kind of use that as a segue, there is, nothing's been announced, nothing's official, nothing's set in stone. But this movie, before it was released, it was generally agreed upon by cast and crew that this is a one-shot deal, you know, one and done. People are talking now about the possibility of a sequel. So, Rebecca, my question for you. Do you need a sequel to this movie? Do you want to see how things progress? Or are you good with what we've got right now and you maybe don't need a sequel? Like, where where are you coming from with that?
1: I 100% do not need a sequel. (laughs) When I heard that news, I I was actually really kind of upset because it reinforces to me that uh, the The studio, of course, they're in the business. They are in a business to make money, and this film made a lot of money for them. So, of course, anytime Hollywood makes a lot of money, they're gonna make a sequel to it. That's just the nature of the beast. They've been doing that for a long time now. Uh, I mean, I I was even going through um, I recently caved into Disney Plus to see Baby Yoda, mm-hmm. and it really uh, it really irritated me how many. Little Mermaid sequels there were. Or how many, you know? Like they've they've made sequels to all these movies that had happy endings. It's like no, just ended at the happy ending. You don't need to give me any more. I was fine with the happy ending. Um, so I think that is that's the problem with Joker is that the film itself seems to be free from uh, committee, free from studio interference. But now it seems like you know now they're kind of maybe trying to get in there and do more of that and that's i'm very uh hesitant about that because i think i mean if you think about how many how many sequels really did surpass the original i think the godfather part two is is hailed is better than the the original uh i mean back to the future part two is Uh, is a great film but even then that it comes as part of a trilogy so it's not exactly you know a film that stands on its own this better so it's just you're taking a chance to make something that could ruin what i think if if joker had been left alone as a standalone film it would have been a classic people 30 40 years from now would go on TCM however people 30, 40 years from now are going to view Turner Classic movies, I don't know, through their eyeballs. I don't know. Um, Through some sort of lens glass thing that's inserted into our eyeballs. I don't know how we're going to be watching TV and movies in in the future. But people are going to go on TCM and talk about this film and how it was... A huge influence on their lives and how it made such an impact on the culture, and it was such a, a well-made film. People are people are gonna talk about that film and what it did. And I think making a sequel, to me, and my way of thinking about film is going to tarnish that as a classic. You're always gonna have it, sure, but it's it's taking that and sort of gimmicking it i don't know that that's a word it's going to make that more of a gimmick now it's mm-hmm. just going to be joker 2 instead of just joker the classic and i think about that with home alone 2 did i really need another movie where kevin gets separated from his family for a christmas no I've already seen that story. It was dumb to begin with, but that home that first home alone is a classic. Yeah. It's such a good movie. And so for me, I think it takes it away from the the classic nature of what Joker could have become in the future. And and I had ha- sat it's it's sad to me that that's just the nature of the beast that that's Hollywood doesn't Hollywood doesn't care about retaining films as they are. They just want to get that next book. And that's why Disney is remaking all of their their animated films from the Disney Renaissance into live action. Are those films better than the animated versions? No. Sometimes they're worse. But they're making them because they know they can make a lot of money off it because people like the originals. People like that first thing that they saw. So, unfortunately... I have no. I have to come to you know peace about. It. I have no control over this situation. I they're not going to be like, oh well, Rebecca Johnson doesn't want us to make it. I guess we won't make it. Like I wish, I wish I had that kind of power, but I mm-hmm. don't. Uh, but I, I have to come to terms with the fact that it probably will happen. There probably will be a sequel, but I don't need it. I think it ruins the original, and I. <laughs> I think there's something to be said about just letting a classic film be a classic film.
0: Well, I tend to agree. And one of, I mean, you, honestly, you, you covered a lot of it for me, but the only, the only thing I'd want to add into that is right now, the, this movie exists in, in a certain context, uh, a certain I, don't know, certain, I don't know, like idiom maybe but this movie occupies a very specific space and it's kind of the, it's sort of like people called it the Phantom Menace effect where the minute you start humanizing Darth Vader, you may be telling a great story, but you're changing the, you're forever changing the way that the world sees this character for for good or for ill. You're changing it now. And Joker, it, it basically tells this story it raises these questions and it doesn't necessarily provide answers and the thing is a sequel has to exist in some kind of relationship to to the original in order to do so it's going to have to to provide specificity that this movie was very careful to avoid it invites you to to make your own conclusions well a sequel just to justify its own existence, has to now take that away, you know. And so, I guess what I'm saying is it is going to change the way. And maybe I'm just badly repeating what you said. I don't know, but it's going to change the way that I presently interpret uh, this this film. By cultural osmosis, if nothing else, even if I never see the the sequel, just by virtue of the fact that it exists, whether I see it or not, it's going to change even, even for me. And so, so there's that. But I guess the caveat that I would add to this is a lot of people did not believe in the creative merit of making a solo Joker film in the first place. And I think it would be fair to say that Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix and everyone else, I'm not trying to you know, minimize credit here, I'm just saying that those two, as sort of the creative leads of the film, they basically proved those people wrong. And so if they've done it once, there is a possibility they could do it again. I just see more risk inherent to that than I do any any possible reward. I guess, given my druthers, what I'd like is this same kind of philosophy perhaps applied to other characters. And it doesn't even need to be supervillains. Who's to say that you can't do a low-budget, say, Lois Lane film? Leave the Superman stuff out of it, all the Clark Kent stuff, leave that out of it. Maybe there's an amazing story there that someone can tell, just do it on a low budget. This textured and nuanced and layered character piece, everything that makes Lois Lane, Lois Lane. Tell that story, or maybe you can do it with Mister Freeze, or maybe you can do it with Dick Grace, or, or whoever. You know, I mean, I, if we're if we have to turn this into a formula, my preference would be applying this more or less, I guess, the same formula to other characters. I mean. I can think of a lot of ways that, say, uh, a, a filmmaker along the lines of a David Fincher or somebody like that. What might he have to say about, uh, like, a Riddler uh, sort of sort of movie? You know, what might he bring to the table on something like that, or that matter? You know, maybe go the other way. You know, uh, there are uh, heroic characters, or just neutral character, or just whoever. There are ways of making this work that you don't need to to go back to the well with the Joker. You can maybe give other characters their own sort of time in the sun. And I don't know. I mean, just for that reason alone, I'm not super enthused about Joker 2 when there's so much else that could be done, you know? so. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you brought up the people who were skeptical of a villain origin story as a a film focus. And I have to admit that in the back of my mind, even though I was willing to go and see where it was going to take me, I did have some skepticism because Disney made a movie about Maleficent, who is one of my all-time favorite villains, one of my all-time favorite fictional characters, and they completely ruined her. They did what they failed at doing what the Joker did because they made her what she's not. They uh, spoiler alert for Maleficent they turned her into a hero. They t- they took the Mistress of all evil <laughs> huh. and they made her into a hero slash maternal figure. It was the most bizarre choice. They didn't even try. They uh, instead of cursing her to. Uh, uh, to die she curses her to just kind of go to sleep it's fine it's not, not not actually that big of a deal uh and so it just they were not able in my opinion Disney was not successful with doing a villain origin story for maleficent because they did not retain who she was as a character with joker they did they did not turn him into uh they did not want us to think of him as a hero he may have considered himself a hero but he uh is not meant to be looked at by the end of that film as a hero. Uh he's you know got blood on his face and he's killed all these people and he's murdered a man live on television. These are not heroic qualities. So they retained his villain status and I think that's what made that work. And uh you also brought up the the idea of uh, the comparison of Anakin Skywalker and changing knowing his origin does it change how you see Darth Vader as a as a villain and i think that's such a, a an interesting thing to bring up because i think that's why for me a joker 2 probably would not be as effective because um, i did kind of want to know what made arthur become Joker. And I think they did that well in the first one. But by the second one, that appeal is gone. Right. I don't I don't have that journey to go on with him anymore. I, I I assume a Joker, too, would just be Joker playing something dastardly and he tries to achieve it and maybe he's stopped by Batman by this point. I don't know. Maybe he goes around and kills a whole bunch of people. Well, we've already kind of seen that. So... I think you've already played your hand in the first one because the the gimmick to the Joker solo film is that is the question, how does this guy, how does this sad, lonely guy who gets fired from his job, how does he become one of the most notorious comic book villains ever created? That's what you're going to see that film for. And so for a sequel, where where would you take that from there? I can't even imagine what story. Maybe, maybe they have some great story plan. I don't know, but I that I can't see it being any better than what what they've already done. So I think they've already played their hands story wise. But uh, that's just my personal opinion.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree. And the other thing is, uh, this is one of those things I'm I'm kind of proud to to admit I was wrong about and to eat crow about. I think i even posted it on facebook a couple of times um before the movie came out i said yeah guys on the best day the joker ever had we're looking at about probably a worldwide box office of probably 400 million at most at most 500 million that's about as high as i'm willing to go and uh, obviously We're way past that. So, you know, we're looking at a billion dollar film. And the thing about it is, this was such an out of left field sort of success story where low production cost plus R rating plus no release in China somehow equals $1 billion worldwide. No one seems to figure this out. But the thing is, it was. This was kind of the flavor of the month. This was kind of the cool, edgy movie to see just in time for Halloween. You know, this was the the babysitter worthy film. You know, let's call up a babysitter, honey. We're going to go see this movie. You know, there were this movie intentionally or not checked a lot of different boxes that let's face it. This is all up to, you know, the popular zeitgeist. You cannot bottle something like this because if you could, everybody would do it. A lot of the a lot of this film's success is take this away I mean it, it's sort of accidental, you know. I don't think it's repeatable. And let's face it, we live in a world where a sequel has got to outperform the original lest it be considered a a failure of some kind. I don't see how any movie, any sequel to this film can possibly reach a billion dollars. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know the future. I have no way of knowing how things are going to turn out. All I know is that I don't think that the odds and probability and the the more uh, just objective sort of scientific things that's what I'm more comfortable with, and I don't see how those things are in any way favoring a sequel to this film. And so just all in all, I I don't want to bet against the same people that proved me wrong once. It seems stupid <laughs> to bet against them now, but it's just – i I've got greater trepidation – put it this way. I've got greater trepidation about a Joker sequel than I do this first film, Right. So whatever whatever you want to make of that. So now, before we call it a day, I need uh, two things from you. First up, um, do you have any kind of parting thoughts about this? Do you have anything? Because I didn't necessarily want this to be a super comprehensive discussion. I wanted it to be sort of a springboard. Maybe we can come back at some point and maybe tie a ribbon around this at some point in the future. But still, is there anything that you haven't said yet that you you want to throw in before we call it a day?
1: Well just to sort of wrap up my thoughts I th- I thought this was a really uh, well shot film It uh, it was very cinematic. It had uh, a a real look to it that it was is the look of the film to uh, communicate the story. And I think it did a really really good job. And uh, you mentioned the score was very good, Um, and the musical cues were very effective when it did come in. Uh, And and acting was phenomenal. Uh, And the, the direction, the the way the story is told. I mean, it just it it's a Joker is a film that hits on all levels it succeeds on all levels in my opinion and i think that's what makes uh the film uh, so successful in its entirety is because it it it's it seems like it i look at it as a film where people really thought this through it mm-hmm. wasn't rushed into or i don't know maybe the history would tell me a little differently but in, in terms of the creative aspect of it it seems like it wasn't rushed. That people took their time with it. They thought through. Joaquin Phoenix thought through his cackle. He didn't just, you know, uh, laugh like a crazy man. He thought about a laugh that sounded like a man who might be crying. Right. That that is a that is something that tells me that that actor thought about his character so in depth that he uh, that he customized his famous joker cackle that every joke every person who plays the joker is going to be judged by that joker cackle and he thought about it in such a way that it was determined by character choices so that even that small detail tells me that the people who were in charge of making this film and who were responsible for the creative aspects of it really thought about what they were doing and what story they wanted to tell and i really appreciate that and i think that that is something that uh Warner Brothers, I think, is taking the wrong lesson from the success, the, the financial success of, of Joker. They take the lesson as being, oh, people like that. Let's just make another one and we'll make a lot of money. I think what they're they're failing to realize is that it was so successful, in my opinion, because it was so different, because it was something original. It was something that creatively we had not seen before, and it felt fresh. And I think people were excited by that, and uh, I know I was personally. And I'm I'm like a lot of people. I see it. You talk about Facebook. I see it a lot in Facebook comments. Like, why isn't Hollywood doing anything original these days? Every everything in Hollywood is just recreating what had been in the past just for nostalgia points and and trying to get that lightning in a bottle again and they just anytime they do that i think they largely on most most uh projects fail because you cannot recreate that kind of magic and i think this film is so rewatchable that i i find that uh Every time that I take a look at it or I want to dissect it a little more, I find something new that I didn't the first time. And I think that's why, in my personal opinion, that's why people probably went back to see it so many times is because they wanted to figure that out. Why? What's the deal with the girlfriend? What? What's the ending? What do you think it means? I think those kinds of things are what get people to rewatch a film. And that's if you want to make a lot of money, you got to make a film that people are going to pay to go see five, six, seven times. Uh, So I think that that um, says a lot about the film that people wanted to go back and see it again. And I'm so glad that it was uh, received very well because it is a film that took a shot. It, it, It tried something. And I think it succeeded because people really cared about what they were doing. Uh, so it gives me a little bit of a hope for people, creative people, who want to tell stories and make films and uh, do something different. So for for me, it uh, it's a it's a little a uh, little bit of hope there in Hollywood that people do still care about that kind of thing. So uh, I for me, Joker is a film that I'm going to really enjoy rewatching. I enjoyed rewatching it for our conversation so that I could, could remember what I had seen the first time. And uh, so I, I, I like that it um, tried to have a perspective and, and just, it told a story. It just told a story and they just made a good film. And I think uh, above everything else, I'm glad that it's a film that I don't feel like I've wasted hours of my life on. It's it's a film that I feel like it, it added something to my life and my enjoyment of the art form.
0: Very well put. And um, I... Honestly, I I couldn't agree more. So now the second thing I need from you, and I honestly I'm gonna have to admit to another mistake here. So uh, maybe this is a record for me. I don't know. I I think I actually misspoke at the beginning when I was introducing you. Um, I think I I think I, I was I got mixed up and I was thinking about Superman Forever Radio. <laughs> um but you are actually the host of Supergirl Radio no forever just Supergirl Radio so i apologize if i misspoke but i'm pretty sure i did at the beginning so but um why don't you tell everybody uh where they can find you and what your show's all about and all that fun stuff it's
1: totally fine. It happens. Uh, I'm a big fan of Bob Fisher's Superman Forever Radio, so I'd take that as a compliment. Uh, but yeah, so you can find Supergirl Radio at SupergirlRadio.com. All of our links to all of our uh, social media, all of the places where you can find us to listen to us are there on the right side of the page. So you can just go to SupergirlRadio.com. But we're on everything. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, All the any anywhere. Uh, Stitcher Radio. Anywhere you can listen to podcasts, you can find us. And uh, we are a uh, weekly podcast. We're taking a little bit of a break. I know, uh, you you mentioned that sometimes podcasters need to take a break, and that's okay to do. And so we do that. Uh, during the uh, Christmas uh, New Year's Eve sort of holiday season there uh, just just to have a little bit of a break and a vacation and get to enjoy the holidays with family so so it's good to do but we will be back when um, uh, the show comes back with crisis and Uh, For the rest of Season 5, we'll talk about those episodes. But in the summer, uh, it's probably most fun to listen to Supergirl Radio in the summer hiatus time because we cover a lot of random things. We we dig into the Supergirl comics. We talk about a lot of different uh topics that we want to talk about so uh we uh like to discuss the tv show on the cw the supergirl tv series but uh we also talk about all things supergirl and so it could you you never know what you're going to get when you you come listen to us so uh i hope if anybody enjoys supergirl uh they'll check us out uh, because we really love the character and we love talking about her so uh you can go to supergirlradio.com if you are interested
0: Sounds sounds good to me, but uh, one of the things, though, that I've wanted to send an angry email to the showrunners about is that the character's name is supposed to rhyme with Sarah, not Mara. But, uh, I don't know, apparently that's just something that uh, the showrunners and I are just going to have to agree to disagree about, it, 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 it seems.
1: Well, uh, it, it seems to, just to, just to clarify that, it, it seems to kind of go back and forth. Supergirl, the movie, called her Kara. Uh, on Smallville and the DCAU, she's Kara. Uh, so the, it sort of goes back and forth. And I think that's sort of a, a choice of what you want to do with the, the name. Uh, I, I like it either way. And so uh, I'll go with it for the, the show's purpose of calling her Kara to go back as a throwback to Supergirl, the movie. But uh, yeah, it does. We've, we've even had that debate. We have an episode of Supergirl Radio uh, dedicated to the pronunciation debate. So if you're interested in that, <laughs> uh, uh, that is actually available for you. So um, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's sometimes a little frustrating.
0: Well, um, you know I, I you know what? I didn't want to put you on the spot, you know. But uh, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and do it now. Uh, basically, I went out to uh, dinner with my wife earlier, because she's my wife. I, I, the, the, the person that I'm married to is my wife. I got married a, a couple months <laughs> ago, and now she's my wife. It, anyway, but um, went out, we had dinner uh, together tonight, and so you know, she asked me, you know, she, she knew that you and I were gonna be recording, but she didn't really have a lot of details about it. She doesn't really, you know, take this the way I mean it, she doesn't really know a whole lot about you. She didn't know about uh, your podcast or anything. So I was telling her, I was like, yeah, she, you know, Rebecca, she, you know, she's great. She she does this show, it's called um, Supergirl Radio, and they talk quite a lot, as is my understanding. They talk quite a lot about, uh, you know, the show and goings on with it and everything. And so that really piqued Stacy's interest. And she says, oh, you know what, maybe I'm going to check them out now because uh, I never knew that there was a podcast out there about Supergirl. So you may have. Just by showing up on, uh, on my show here tonight, you may have actually found another new listener. So anyway, I just thought well, you might kick out of that.
1: Well, very cool. I hope if she listens that she enjoys our, our conversations. We, we do talk about some serious things, uh, but we also have, like to have a, a good time. Um, so there's a lot of laughter that's involved with us. So it's a, it's a really good episode of Supergirl Radio when there's a lot of laughter. So uh, I hope if she listens that she en- enjoys that and maybe gets a little laugh out of us as well.
0: <laughs> I hope so, but either way, I'll, I want to thank you for uh, taking time to uh, join in with me tonight. This uh, this episode is a lot better than it would have been if I tried to do it all on my own. You know, you really elevated it, as you always do, and I, I appreciate that. I appreciate your, your ideas and your thoughts, and I just appreciate you always being just a great person. So, anyway, now, uh, I think that's basically it for Joker, at least for the time being. Now, as to next week, what I've decided that I, that I wanted to do is, I've decided, you know what, it's time to finally, speaking of going back to the well, uh, since that seems to be kind of a an element of, of this episode, I've decided, you know what, it's time for me to go back to the well. What I want to do is finally make my way back to uh, the uh, Legion of Superheroes five years later, I'm gonna be taking uh, a pretty intensive look at Legion of Superheroes number eight. This is gonna be the start of a series of Legion of Superheroes episodes that goes actually a couple of weeks, uh, several weeks in fact. And then after that, I'm gonna shift gears and talk about some other stuff. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is Trennis Magnus punches reality. The winter hibernation is over and it's time to get back to the business of getting back to business. So that's all for next week so i think that's pretty much it for me for this week so bye everybody i will see you next week boy we are out
1: all right well that was a lot of fun thanks for having me on i really appreciate uh inviting me to talk about this film i try to (laughs)
0: feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to 2 truefreaks.com There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the 2 True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included, many will enter, Few will win, the white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only, all models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzicore of Milan, Italy.
1: dramatic reading
0: sorry i ain't sorry sorry i ain't sorry i ain't sorry he trying to roll me up i ain't picking up headed to the club i ain't thinking about you me and my ladies sip dissy cups i don't give a fuck chucking my deuces up suck on my balls pause i had enough I ain't thinking about you. Middle fingers up, put them hands high. Wave it in his face, tell him boy bye. Now you wanna say you're sorry. Now you wanna call me crying. Now you gotta see me wildin'. Now I'm the one that's lying. And I don't feel bad about it. It's exactly what you get. Me and my baby, we gon' be alright. I see them boppers in the corner. They sneaking out the back door. He only want me when I'm not there. He better call Becky with the good hair. He better call Becky with the good hair.